Holy Father, we have already been in worship. That suggests we have already embraced the premise of one who believes. But I am not unmindful, dear God, that even in a large congregation like this, on a campus like ours, there are those who struggle to believe. May these few quiet moments somehow assist them in their journey. And for those who do believe, make it clear why it is we can believe with certainty. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. How we have survived this interminable election season is beyond me. I do not know how we have done it. But every election gives us the opportunity to learn again the lesson. We must not yield to the temptation to caricature the other man's position or woman's position. That's true, by the way, when it comes to atheists, no God, theists, God. I don't believe that all atheists are as grumpy as Richard Dawkins and as angry as Sam Harris. I happen to have both their books in my library. I brought them from my library here. Richard Dawkins' international bestseller, The God Delusion. Sam Harris's bestseller, a sequel to his previous bestseller, End of Faith, Letter to a Christian Nation. With your permission, I'd like to quote from both of these atheists. First, Richard Dawkins. These words go by so big and so fast, I'm going to put them on the screen for you, all right? I'll read them from his book. You can follow it on the screen. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Tell us how you really feel, Richard. I don't believe all atheists are as grumpy as Richard Dawkins or as angry as Sam Harris. Let me read to you from Letter to a Christian Nation. Again, I'll put it on the screen for you. It is essential to realize that such obscene misuses of human life, he's just been chronicling human sacrifices in the history of the human race, such obscene misuses of human life have, have always been explicitly religious. They are the product of what people think they know about invisible gods and goddesses and, and of what they manifestly do not know about biology, meteorology, medicine, physics, and a dozen other specific sciences. And it is astride this contemptible history of religious atrocity and scientific ignorance that Christianity now stands as an absurdly unselfconscious apotheosis or a supreme exaltation, kind of the pinnacle. The notion that Jesus Christ died for our sins and that his death constitutes a successful propitiation of a quote-unquote loving God is a direct and undisguised inheritance of the superstitious bloodletting that has plagued bewildered people throughout history. Can an atheist be saved? Does an atheist even want to be? According to a fascinating ancient narrative which we are about to examine in the book of Acts, apparently, apparently the answer to both questions is yes. 
Open your Bible with me, please, to the book of Acts, our theme book for this primetime series. If you didn't bring a Bible, grab, grab that pew Bible in front of you because there is, some, there is some careful logic that will be developed here that I would appreciate your following along. I've got my Today's New International Version. This is prime time. We're in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 17. So if you grab the pew Bible in front of you, the page number you're looking for, easy number to remember, 747. Just take the 747 and you'll get it. Acts chapter 17. Intriguing story. The perfect narrative to provide the context in which we might explore this conversation between atheism and theism. Belief in no God, belief in God. Acts chapter 17. It picks up in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, hit the pause button right there because them, that's his two companions, Silas and Timothy, We noted this a few weeks ago, but whenever Paul came to town, it's absolutely true. There was either a a revival or a revolution. He has started a revolution up in Berea, and they've had to secretly sneak him out of town. They sent him on down to Athens. Paul will come a little bit later. You wait for things to cool off. So he's down in Athens alone. Verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. This is the first time in his life he's ever been to Athens. This is Athens, the grand dame of antiquity. This is the seat of literature. This is the seat of poetry. This is the seat of democracy. This is the home of of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and Epicurus and Zeno. This is Athens. And he is wide-eyed. As he moves to this city, but the the great soul of this familiar man, now familiar to us in this series, the great soul of this man is burdened. The city is full of idols and he can't believe his eyes. He's longing to be hang around some monotheists, believers in one God. And so as the next verse tells us, he finds a synagogue. So verse 17, he reasoned in the synagogue, notice this, with both Jews and God-fearing monotheist Greeks. There are three great monotheistic religions on this planet, as you know. Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. Paul has been an advocate of Judaism. He has converted to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is now a Christian. And he's got to hang around some monotheists. Now, he's not just, they're not just patting each other on the back. Isn't it great we all believe in just one God? Paul has an agenda. I must tell the story of Jesus of Nazareth. I must tell the story of Calvary. So he's going to engage in, in dialogue with monotheists. But you know what? After a while, talking to monotheists gets to be a drag. He said, I've got to hang around some polytheists and some atheists. And so that's exactly what he does. Look at this. So he reads in verse 17 in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happen to be there. Hanging around the Agora. That's the name of the marketplace back then. So one day, while Paul was down in the marketplace, he was near the produce section, I do believe. Hanging around actually near the tomatoes. And I don't know, actually, if uh, Greeks eat tomatoes. We ought to ask Demetra Andreasen or Ellie Economo to tell us. I know he's not hanging around the cauliflower because nobody eats cauliflower. So there was, there was no cauliflower in that market. But he's in the produce section when suddenly he is jumped. He's jumped by some fighting philosophers. That's exactly what it says here at verse 18 in a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers right there in the market began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Now, you don't get the, you don't, you don't get the full impact of that word. In, in, the, uh, in the Greek, it's spermologos. It's the seed picker. It's like a little sparrow that's flitted down to the gutter on the side of the street. And you know how little sparrows go, pick, 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 pick. That's what a seed picker is. He's a man who comes into town and he's woven this little cloth of ideology and he's sewed it up with this piece of philosophy and it's just kind of this this concoction that he's trying to pass off what is this seed picker what is this babbler trying to say others remark he seems to be advocating foreign gods they said this because paul was preaching the good news about jesus and the resurrection so he's been with the monotheists he's with the polytheists and the atheists now we're going to unpack who these epicureans and stoics are in just a moment and then they say all right boy Here it comes. Verse 19. Then they took Paul and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. Hit the pause button right there because Areopagus 
It means Are, the hill of Are, which is the Greek god for war. The Latin god for war is Mars, so it would be Mars Hill in the Latin. So you've heard of Mars Hill, haven't you? This is the Areopagus. It's the same hill. It can mean the hill itself. It was that hill in Athens. By the way, the Athenians believed that the goddess Athena personally founded their city. So they have immense pride in this queen of the Roman Empire. So the Areopagus can be that hill, but it can also refer to the sage council that meets on that hillside. Arguably, the Areopagus as the council is the brightest circle of intellectuals in the Roman Empire. You could not sit in that circle unless you were 60 or older. You had to be a man and you had to be 60 or older. So the bright, the creme de la creme of the society are allowed into that highfalutin circle. They've been hearing this babbler, this sea picker down in the market say, Hey boy, you come with us. We want to explore what you have to say. So that's the story behind verse 19. Then they brought him and then they took him and they brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing, verse 20, some strange ideas to our ears and we'd like to know what they mean. Now, Dr. Luke, as a little editorial aside in parentheses, oh, by the way, he says all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Sounds like a healthy university community to me. And now Paul, with that sage circle gathered around him, he hasn't had time to race home to his study and scribble down a few notes. Nope, it's straight from the proto-section to the brightest minds in the Roman Empire. Hey, tell us, what is this you're trying to teach? I want to hit the pause button right there. Because what we are about to encounter together are seven essential principles to guide a conversation between theists and atheists. And we have just run into lesson number one. Seven pertinent lessons to guide us in that conversation. And so I wish you'd take your study guide out. Where's that study guide? Pull that study guide out. Let's get it going. You're going to want the study guide. If you didn't get the study guide, our friendly ushers are coming your way. Just hold your hand up and say, I'd like to have that. I need those seven lessons on how to engage an atheist or a theist. Because it cuts both ways, as we're going to note in just a moment. So hold your hand up all the way to the back of the balcony. And if you're in the overflow room, just put your hand up. Make sure an usher gets it to you. And while they're doing that, I want to say to you who are watching on television, we are delighted to have you. You can get the same study guide. I'm going to give you a website, put it on the screen for you, and you can go and get that study guide. There it is on the screen. You see it at the bottom of the website, www.pmchurch.tv. That's the website, pmchurch.tv. You're looking for the series, the teaching series called Primetime. This is part eight, by the way, of prime time. By the way, let me just say this while we're, we're here. Don't you dare. Next, the next presentation in this series, don't you miss it, because it is the most significant challenge that an atheist can give to a theist. The most significant challenge is, okay, so let's have a God. Your God? Evil world? How can we possibly have your God, whom you claim? is a great and good God in this rotten and sorry world. It's called theodicy. How can you defend a good God in an evil world? Is God to blame? Don't you miss next time. Don't miss it at all. We'll be right back here in seven days. All right. But let's, the, the title of this teaching, those of you on uh, television, you're looking for Can an Atheist Be Saved? You're looking for that title, Can an Atheist Be Saved? And when it says study guide right there, click on the study guide. You will have the same study guide we do. Now notice, these lessons are divided between Christians and atheists. The first two are for Christians. The middle three are for atheists. The last two will be for Christians as well. Lesson number one is for Christians. Write it down, please. Be willing to state your case for God. Jot that down. Be willing to state your case for God. Because you think about it. Paul could conveniently have opted out of that. Hey, gentlemen, oh, that would have been such an honor. But unfortunately, I have a previous engagement and I can't come with you. Sorry. He could easily have slipped out of that invitation. I mean, given the two schools of philosophy that he's going to be obviously debating intellectually, mentally debating, 
Let's talk about those two schools. You got it in your study guide there. Let's talk about the Epicurean school of philosophy. It was founded by Epicurus, 342 to 270 BCE, before the Christian era. They rejected the popular polytheism. Okay, forget it, forget it. And they taught that pleasure is the chief goal of a life free from pain and fear without any higher moral law. A virtually atheistic system. They believed in the gods, but the gods are so far out in the universe, they never come to this planet. Essentially, no gods. All right? So the Epicurean philosophy is essentially atheistic. The rival Stoic school of philosophy, keep your pen moving, founded by Zeno from the island of Cyprus, by the way. His dates, very similar, 340 to 265 BCE. This school, the Stoics taught, disciplined indifference alike to pain and pleasure. Have you heard of people say, oh, he is so stoical. Oh, what a stoic. Look how strong he is. That's what they valued. The disciplined indifference alike to pain and pleasure, maintaining the primacy of the rational faculty in man. They were a virtually pantheistic, a universe pervading mind of God. Pick up a rock. God's mind is in that rock. Look at that tree. God is in the tree. Look at the birds. God's everywhere. He's he's contained in nature. You don't believe in pantheism. That means all is God, nor do I. But the Stoics did. But here's the point, ladies and gentlemen. Both systems of philosophy were antagonistic to the truth about God that Paul is going to have to defend today. He had to defend it. So it would be easy for him to say, oh boy, I would love to come. Unfortunately, I have a previous engagement. No. The point is, his response is a lesson for those of us who believe today. Don't turn down an opportunity to testify to your faith. You're saying, Dwight, I'm, I'm really not ready for that big one. Forget about when you're ready or not. God knows when you're ready. Don't turn down an opportunity. Remember, you may be one of a series of tiny little links that God is forging into this chain to lead someone to eternal life. You, you just say a word. Don't worry in advance. I don't think I should go. No, you get the invitation. Apparently, God thinks you ought to go. That's the point. Remember, jot it down. Both logic, and we're going to show this in just a moment, both logic and the other person's conscience are on your side. When you are dialoguing with an atheist, he believes he has no conscience that is informed by any power outside of him. You happen to know he has a conscience that is informed by a power outside of him. And that tells you that while you are talking to him, that conscience is being activated by the God you believe in. And he internally is having to agree. He may not accept your appeal, but he has to respond to it. She has to respond. She's got a conscience. The only way you cannot have a conscience is what the Bible calls a seared conscience. You have shut it down and it is as dead as a doorknob. Nobody, nobody is there. So don't worry about it. Don't be afraid. Plunge right into it. Plunge right into it. Okay, that's, le- that's lesson number one we can learn. Let's, let's pick the story up. Let's go to verse 22. Keep the narrative going here. Verse 22. So here he is in this August. The brightest minds in the Roman Empire are now with bated breath. Speak to us, seed picker. What do you have to say? Paul then stood in the meaning of the Areopagus, verse 22, and he said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Now, some people read that and say, Oh, boy, way to go, Paul. Way to butter him up with a little bit of flattery right at the beginning to get their attention. Let me tell you something. The Greek writer, Lucian, writes, It was forbidden to use complimentary exordia or words when addressing the Areopagus in hope of securing its goodwill. The moment they smelled flattery, you're out of here. We're here for serious business. We want to debate an idea. So just cut to the chase. And Paul does it. He's not saying, Oh, aren't you great? He's saying, You know what? You know what, gentlemen? I've been over this city for a few days. Boy, you are big on religion around here. That's what he's saying. Oh, I see that you are very religious. You are very religious. Verse 23, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now, you need to know that the, that the Greek word for unknown there is agnostos. From whence comes our word agnostic. An agnostic is not an atheist. Atheist says, no way, Jose, no God. Agnostic says, I don't know. I'm unknown about this one. I'm just unknown about it. He said, I was wandering around in your city and I've seen all these, all these altars. 
By the way, the reason he's seen all those altars is because tradition tells us that once during a severe plague of pestilence inside Athens, a Crete, a Crete named Epimenides came into town. He says, hey, listen, I can solve this. Uh, he took a, a, a flock of white sheep and black sheep, took them all up to the Areopagus. And he said, all right, now, sheep, go. And he scattered the sheep and he instructed the citizens everywhere a sheep lies down to rest. I want you to slay that sheep and build an altar. So there were altars all over the Queen City. Everywhere. Paul says, I've been walking around. You are a religious. You are religious. In fact, I even saw an altar to an unknown God. Apparently, and now here, boy, he doesn't waste, there is no flattery. He is cutting to the chase. Apparently, he says in, uh, in verse 23, you are ignorant. You see that? Apparently, you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I have come to proclaim to you. And then without an apology, he launches into a defense of the Creator. For those who believe in the Creator at this hour of human history, take a lesson from Paul. He's not afraid to say, I happen to believe in a Creator. Don't you ever apologize for believing in a Creator. Paul launches right into it. Let me tell you about the Creator. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, is the Lord of heaven and earth. And He does not live in temples built by hands. No, no, no. And verse 25, He is not served by human hands as if He needed anything. Rather, He Himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else from one man. That would be Adam. From one man He made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And He marked out their appointed times in history and boundaries of their lands. Boy, I tell you, he is plunged into it. There are no cutesy little illustrations here. There are no little stories on a, on a bag of a napkin here. He said, i got to talk. I have your ear for just a few moments. Here it is. And then notice the point he makes. And I love this in verse 27. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. Isn't that beautiful? Ladies and gentlemen, God wants to be found. That's the point for the believer. God isn't playing hide and seek. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. You couldn't find me. Gotcha. No, God is saying, I want you to find me. I'm getting as close to you as I divinely can. I want to be found by you. In fact, this same Paul, when he wrote the epistle to the Romans, boy, this is a zinger for Paul. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to, 18 to 20. Paul makes a point. In fact, we're not going to look it up. You go look it up some other time. We'll put it on the screen here for you, though, the study guide. This, this same Paul penned the stunning declaration in Romans 1, verses 18 through 20, that there is enough evidence in nature to prove the existence of a Creator. And in fact, he really gets bold. Look at the very next line. So much evidence that we are without excuse should we reject that evidence. Paul's saying, I'm telling you, it's out there. It's out there. You got a conscience? Of course you do. You have a conscience that can spot that evidence. There's enough to believe in an almighty or omnipotent divine or designing mind. And if you say no at the end of your life, you're without excuse. Somebody came to Bertrand Russell. You've heard of Bertrand Russell? The famous atheist philosopher. He's dead now. Somebody came to him and they said, hey, Bertrand. Let's say you end up in the judgment. Of course, he didn't believe in the judgment. Let's say you end up in the judgment and you're standing before God. What will you say to God? And Bertrand Russell replied, Not enough evidence. The genius, arguably the brightest mind in the history of Christianity, the genius Paul says, No, it won't cut it. It won't cut it. There has been enough evidence in this life for a mind to say yes or no to the existence of a master designer. And I love Paul's point to the high intellectuals of Athens. Gentlemen, he is a God who wants to be found by you. Imagine my surprise to read of some research done in 1999 regarding the psychology of atheists. What's going on in the mind of one who's an atheist? Dr. Paul Ritz, Witz, New York University, eventually 
after conducting that study on the psychology of atheism, published his results entitled The Faith, Faith of the Fatherless. You go online, 1999, Paul Witz. Fascinating conclusion. I'm going to share it with you. I put it on the screen. Witz found with astonishing frequency, atheists had serious problems with their fathers. Absent, abusive, and weak father figures went hand in hand with a phenomenon of virulent. That means just, 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 just deep and angry atheism. Witz hypothesized that atheist anger or disdain for their fathers was projected toward God and changed to rejection of the divinity. Now, be very careful. Remember, in the beginning, be very careful. You cannot extrapolate from that research that all atheists have problems with their fathers. You understand that, don't you? But the point is, in examining the issues Behind the philosophy, one psychologist said, I think it has something to do with the father relationship in that child's home. I don't want to know this God. Look what he did to me. Paul comes along in verse 27 and says, No, 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 no. You need to know this God is hoping against hope that you'll find him, that you'll come to him. He can be found. And then look at verse 28. Can you believe this? Paul is in that circle. He hasn't gone back to his room. He didn't grab some notes. It's all being done now. Watch this. Everything's happening in verse 28 by memory. No PowerPoint. Let me see. What was that quotation again? It's not there. Verse 28. Paul continues this God who wants to be found. Then Paul says in verse 28, For in Him we live and move and have our being. Your newer translations have quotation marks around that. He's quoting one of their great poets. And more, what, what is more, Paul goes on, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Hit the pause button right there. Do you know what Paul is doing? He is quoting the scholar poets that are held in high regard by this circle of intellectuals. Brilliant. He got to know what makes them tick. What guides their philosophy. Lesson number two. Write it down, please. Christian. This is for the Christian now, not the atheist. Be aware. That doesn't say beware. That says be aware of the arguments. I'm going to put it here of both sides. Both sides. Be aware of the arguments. Paul read and studied the masters. And so must you. That's why I read Dawkins. That's why I read Harris. Not because I'm seeking to be persuaded. Because I want, however, to be informed. I want to know about that logic or the lack thereof. I want to know the method of argumentation. I would like to know what makes you tick. And I will read your book for that very reason. And I hope you will read my book for that same reason. Intellectual honesty and openness commands us to seek to know the great minds that inform a philosophy. Be, right, be widely read. Here's what I'm telling you. College students, university students, young adults, prime time, be widely read. Don't limit your reading to the Holy Scripture. Don't isolate that sentence by itself. Don't limit your reading to the Holy Scripture. Read widely. Read your antagonist's point of view. Read your protagonist's point of view as well. Read both sides. Read, 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 read. I have here in the pulpit with me Christianity Today cover story just uh, three months ago. I want to tell you the background behind this cover story. When I was a boy, 1966, I remember my dad getting a Time magazine. 1966, it, was a, it had a black cover on it, red border, and in the middle of that magazine, we were over in Japan, so that thing came through a bit of mail, and I saw it there, three words. God is dead. It was a report by the Secular Journal on a new movement within liberal, liberal theology in America during the early 60s that eventually concluded there is no God. And so it was a dissection of that thinking, no God. Can you imagine? No God theology. Christianity Today, three months ago, did a play on that. And I'll show you the cover of this. They're making a the point. God is not dead yet. It's a fascinating piece. Three months ago, 
I wish you could get this piece because inside they are analyzing the resurgence. Get, get a load of this. The resurgence of natural theology in secular departments of philosophy. You say, what are you talking about, Dwight? Natural theology. Natural theology seeks to use philosophy to prove the existence of God. And it's beginning to sweep the nation. And I'll quote a, a, an atheist uh, philosopher right up here in the Western Michigan University in just a moment. You need to read what the theologians of your faith persuasion are arguing. They're taking philosophy and saying you can prove the existence of God through philosophy. Now, in your study guide, I put three of, their, three of the four, four uh, uh, syllogisms reported in this uh, magazine. Three of them are in your study guide, and I want to go through them. Look, it, don't you come to me like I'm some kind of authority on this, but I want you to look. I want you to note that bright minds, much brighter than mine, and perhaps brighter than yours, are using logic and philosophy to establish a case for the existence of God. All right, let's take the cosmological argument. Do you see it there? Cosmological argument. Number, here's the premise. Premise number one, everything that exists has an explanation of its existence, either in the necessity of its own nature or in an external cause. Now, don't put any more up there, but just look at that one. That's defensible. You see this pulpit right here? It's either here because it's serving a function or there is something, there is something intrinsic in this that says we've got to have it. Now, we have a designer over in uh, Illinois that made this once upon a time. So, we know that. The cosmological argument is every house has a builder and the builder of all things is God. All right? Let's put premise number two now on the screen. You have it in your study guide. If the universe has an explanation of its existence, that explanation is God. I'll comment on that in a moment. Number three, the universe exists. Number four, therefore, the explanation of the universe's existence is God. Now, ladies and gentlemen, just look at that real quick. Number three is undeniable. Nobody's challenging. Does this universe really exist? I think we all agree on that one. So, the question would be regarding one or two. But one is very plausible. You know, there has to be, there has to be some sort of uh, some necessity for this or an, an externally caused reason for this to exist. Most people would agree with that. The big, the big catch is number two there. If the universe has an explanation of its existence, the explanation is God. By the way, an atheist tend to throw number two out, but it in fact is synonymous with the atheist claim that if God does not exist, then the universe has no explanation of its existence. Atheists will say that. There's no explanation for this. <laughs> Stephen Jay Gould, this is incredible, said it, the, human, the human organism is the result of 67 trillion accidents in a row. <laughs> Please. There's no explanation. You see, we're just an accident. We just happen. That's pretty hard anymore to hold. But that, that would be the point of contention, would be that number two. I'm telling you, nothing is, nothing is airtight. You understand that? We haven't found an airtight argument for the existence of God philosophically. Okay, let's go to number two. The teleological, this is the design argument. This is much simpler, but heavy. Number one, the fine-tuning of the universe is due either to physical necessity or chance or design. That's a fact. Nobody's going to argue with number one. Okay, so we've got to go on to number two. It is not due to physical necessity or chance. Now, physical necessity, those are the constants and quantities that must have the values that they do. And everything is locked in. It can only be this way, but scientists are now telling us that the universe really represents a vast range of values. They have what's called the superstring theory. Don't ask me to explain that to you, but it represents a vast range of values. So it can't be that everything's locked in. So what's the other one we're left with? The other one we're left with is chance. But the odds against fine-tuning are almost insurmountable unless there is a multiverse. That means millions of universes, multiverse instead of a universe. But that's a little hard. So therefore, the universe is due to design, number three. Huh. Finally, the moral argument. This one I think has, has you, can, you can use this one yourself. Number one, if God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist. What are these uh, duties and values? They are valid and binding, independent of human opinion. Number two, objective moral values and duties do exist. And that's where the atheist says, oh, time out. I don't think they exist. I don't think they exist. There's nothing objective. It's just kind of we're all in this thing together. Very different. But and however, 
It's that number two. That in fact, you can press. They're most thinking people today are saying, you know, there is objective moral value around us. If there is, number three, therefore God exists. All right, ladies and gentlemen, here's the point. Nothing's airtight. There's no such thing as a faithless theology. But the very fact that there's a resurgence today in American academia for natural theology and Christian philosophy, here's the point I want you to get. You don't have to feel beaten down. And, oh, man, this is terrible. I'm a theist and nobody believes theism. And I'm in real trouble because nobody smart believes it. Rubbish. Some of the brightest minds in this nation believe just as you do. Now, here's that atheist theology up here in Western Michigan University. Put it on the screen. His name is Quentin Smith. He says, I've got to tell you something. He's writing to the philosophical world. God is not dead in academia anymore, is what he's saying. He returned to life in the late 1960s and is now alive and well in his last academic stronghold. I can't believe it. Philosophy departments are now being filled with theists. There's a new movement in this nation. And the theists are standing up and saying, hey, 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 time out, time out. I believe. And I believe you can show it philosophically. Here's a point, primetime generation. You don't have to prove the existence of the universe. You got a whole lot of bright minds that are already working on making solid the ground you stand on. Paul knew what his antagonists believed. He read their works. You must read the works of your protagonists and your antagonists. Now, stop it for the Christians, and I'm going to insert right here because this is the place to do it. Three lessons for the atheist. If you're an atheist right now, you're watching on television, you just happen to tune in, and now here you are. I want you to just hold on before you switch the channel. Just hold on. I want you to consider these three. Then you go on. Okay, here's lesson number three. This is to an atheist. Be ready to admit that both worldviews are based upon, write it in, personal choice. You had to choose this. You were born with it. You had to choose it. Both worldviews. Let me quote an atheist for you now. Thomas Nagel. This is his book, The Last Word. It's page 130. And you'll have to fill this in. Put it on the screen. Nagel writes, I want atheism to be true and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It is that I hope, write it down, I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. At least he's honest. He's made a choice. This is my choice and I'm standing by it. Now, a theist named Thomas D. Williams. By the way, somebody gave me... A little uh, gift card. And I bought this book down in Borders. You can get the book. That book is worth its price, greater than you think. He deals with a new atheism. It's a Christian response to it. But here's Thomas Williams writing. We must get one thing clear from the start. Atheism involves a choice, just as theism does. The exclusion of God is not the only possible reading of the facts. And reason does not compel a thinking person to deny God's existence. Now, hold on. Just as religious faith involves not only the reason, but also the will, so too does the decision not to believe. Watch this. Atheism evidences a refusal to admit the possibility of God's existence. A simple analysis of the facts cannot compel a person to believe or unbelief. Nobody's jammed into their corner. Nope. A choice must be made. Now get ready to write it down. But it is disingenuous for the atheist to assert that their choice is based simply on fact. It is not. You chose your choice. Final line. Richard Dawkins just quoted him. Exhibits a boundless faith in the power of science to heal all ills and answer all questions. End quote. Point is, ladies and gentlemen, it takes a choice. Whatever your worldview, theist or atheist, you had to choose it. You were not commanded and compelled by the facts. You had to choose it. And by the way, it took a little bit of faith. Either worldview takes a bit of faith. Lesson number four to the atheist. Be willing to accept that there are bright theistic scientists, but there are no bright atheistic theologians. That's a bit of logic, but I need you to hang in with me. Because atheism has no theologians. There are no experts in atheism on God. 
The reason this lesson in logic is vital is simply because the atheist writers that write today about God and faith, like Dawkins and like Sam Harris, they are ill-equipped to deal with the notion of God at all. They are not theologians. Consequently, they are not steeped in the history of philosophy. They are not steeped in the history of theological philosophy. They have never been there. They are like Eskimos in the Arctic Circle trying to teach tropical medicine. You know not of what you speak. You say, Dwight, that's too hard. That's too harsh. No, it's not. We have a biologist and a doctoral student who are sweeping the nation. Dictating, it's incongruous to me, dictating what the conversation about God ought to be. Neither one knows God. Neither one reads God. Neither one's seen God. Neither one believes in God. And yet each is acting like the final word on God. No, no, no. We have to agree with this. This is logic. There are bright scientists who believe in theism. And there are bright theologians who do. There are bright scientists who believe in atheism. There are no theologians. Atheism has no theologians. It cannot speak to the realm of theology. That's the point. Lesson number five. This is also final one to the atheist. Be open, please. Be open to the possibility. Because you know why I can say this? You are an intellectually bright mind. You pride yourself in your openness and I am very proud of that openness that you display. Be open to the possibility that God exists and is appealing both to your mind and to your heart. That's all I'm saying. I mean, it's the intellectually honest stance to take. I mean, how could you take a stance that says, I don't even want to know. I don't want anybody even... I don't, I don't want to hear that. You're, you're too bright. You're too bright. Even as a scientist, you know you must consider all, all the premises before you arrive at your conclusion. All I'm saying, if you're an atheist on this campus... If you're intellectually open, I'm inviting you. I'm not going to ask you to pray because you don't believe in prayer. So don't pray. Just say, just say to the space around you. Just say these words. You can just say, look, if you are out there and you are truly God, then I'm willing to make contact with you in order to determine if I should trust you with my life. All you have to do is ask. If you're right, there'll be nothing that comes to you. Nothing ever in your life. But if theism is right, there will be somebody on the other side of a door you have never opened who can give to you what both your mind and heart have longed for most. you got to be open. You can't play the game. I refuse to ask. You're too bright. Give yourself the chance. All right, the final two. End the narrative right here. Let's go. Verse 20. Verse, uh, what verse is it? Verse uh, 29. Therefore, Paul is talking to this these erudite... Intellectuals, therefore, since we are all God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. Same root word, agnostos. Agnostic. He's overlooked our agnostic ignorance. But now He commands all people everywhere to repent. For He has set a day when He will judge the world with justice by the man He has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising Him from the dead. Paul is carefully weaving his defense. He's about to come to his crowning appeal. He's going to bring Jesus into this argument. And he's going to hold Jesus up before these intellectuals. But just as it can happen, even when you're testifying to your faith, somebody in the group snickers. And all it takes is one snicker. And I'm not talking about a chocolate bar. All it takes is one sneer. One sneer. You're in the middle of this. You're in the middle of it. And then there's this, huh. And suddenly it's gone. Paul cannot finish where he's been going. The appeal is left out. He only got 
to somebody rising from the dead. The whole point of the market debate was, tell us about this resurrection. And he's cut off by a sneer. That lets you know that you can be the brightest Christian who ever lived and even you can never finish an argument sometimes. Don't consider yourself having to finish the sale. By the way, I need to say this. Don't you ever, ever use the snicker or sneer yourself in argumentation. Ever. 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 Just keep quiet. Somebody sneered. It's exactly what happened in verse 32. But when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, hey, 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 we want to hear you again on this subject. But like it was with the Roman governor Felix, so it will be with the Athenians. That moment will never come again. You will never stand. You will never stand before Paul. That was as close as you got. Right there. Oh, what a miserable failure after that brilliant apologetic. Oh, no, 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 no. It's not a miserable failure. Keep reading. At that, Paul left the council, leaves the hill, Areopagus. But notice verse 34. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. And among them was Dionysius, a member of the highest intellectual circle in the empire. He believed. Even though the sneer cut off the argument, he believed. I believe you're right. Oh, and also, also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. Ladies and gentlemen, lesson number six, would you write it down? Be grateful for those who respond. You're not going to win them all. Don't think that every time you as a theist get into an argument with an atheist, oh, I'm going to do this one right. You're not going to win them all. You're going to lose a lot of them. In fact, don't think about it as winning and losing. You just make the point. Remember, the other man's conscience and your logic is on your side. You just make the point. There is a, if there's a God in this universe, He'll take your little point and it'll continue to remain. Be grateful for those who respond. Can an atheist be saved? Dionysius says, but of course. Of course an atheist can be saved. He reversed his worldview just like that. He walked out of there and said, hey, I'm following this Jesus of Nazareth. Lesson number seven. And by the way, even one, is a, even one is a cause celebre for the kingdom of heaven. So strong is the opposing influence of the fallen Lucifer. Even one. And heaven shouts. Don't ever refuse to walk in to that conversation. You could be the peace, the little seed that all of heaven has been hoping against hope would one day be planted. All right, lesson number seven. But since Christ is the model, write it down. The Christ of Calvary. By the way, why the Christ of Calvary? Because you know what? Jesus stood in front of a, of a Roman procurator named Pilate. And it's the most gracious and respectful conversation you could imagine. This is a pagan. No God. Now, God is trying to reach that pagan governor. And Jesus stands in front of him and says, You want to talk about truth? Why do you ask me? Somebody tell you about me? You already heard about me? You've made up your mind? I hate you. I came for one purpose, and that's to tell the truth. Pilate says, what's truth? Gone. Somebody was moving for Pilate that day. Because in between conversations with Jesus that day, something supernatural took place. The God of the universe came down to Pilate's wife and in the middle of the night, he said, woman, send a message to that man, your husband, the one he's going to try on Friday morning is the God of this universe. Tell him not to put his hand on the Creator God. She sends an urgent message to a servant. Have nothing to do with this man. I've suffered all night in a dream of him. It was heaven making a last move. For an unbelieving pagan, he had everything. Paul was right. There's enough evidence in your lifetime for you to choose the living God. If you say no, you can't say, you didn't give me enough. Bertrand Russell, sorry. You got all you got. And it was enough. Look at Jesus with grace. He could have shot back. What do you mean, what is truth? Nothing. He just stands there. Lesson number seven, write it down. Christian, be sure that your love exceeds your logic. 
That's it. I want to end with that. Be sure that your love exceeds your logic. Oh, yeah, I'm excited about a little bit of syllogistic philosophy that can prove the existence of God. I want to nail it down. I want to find that. I want to study more about it. But I want to tell you something. Did you see that? He's not a magician. He's an illusionist. My new friend, Derek Elmer, was going up to the cafeteria one day, and he was entertaining everybody going up to the cafeteria. I stood there fascinated. Thank you, Justin, for bringing him in. This was the perfect day to do it. What Derek is trying to tell us is, seeing may not be the full evidence. But maybe the magician is right. Maybe the atheist is right. Let's just say he is. Seeing is believing. Then, ladies and gentlemen, lock this in your heart and never forget it. If seeing is believing for an atheist, then when he observes a loving Christian like you, When she observes a loving Adventist Christian like you, if seeing is believing, then maybe it works like this in an unbelieving mind. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But if you are that loving to me, maybe, just maybe, maybe, The God you believe in can be in me too. Seeing is believing. When they see you, don't let it be the logic. Let it be the love of Christ that exudes from you to the one with whom you seek to tell the truth about God. You want to be a loving Christian? Do you? You want to be a loving Christian? I know you do. I want to pray with you as we close. Stand to your feet, please. And let's ask God to make us... Let's ask God to make us individuals through whom love trumps logic. Oh, God. The last picture we looked at is Jesus standing before Pilate. There's an atheist. There's a pagan. And here's the Creator God of the universe. And with gentle respect... Well, that's the theme text, isn't it, for our whole series, 1 Peter 3.15. Be ready to give an answer for the reason of the hope that is in you. And then Peter says, but do it with gentleness and respect. Oh God, we look at our Lord who does it with gentleness and respect. Maybe seeing is believing. Maybe what He wants to see Maybe what she longs to observe is some sort of human evidence that this God of love is believable. Make us lovable so that you might be believable. We pray in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen.